Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, um, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. Okay, um, we're going to continue in our series in 1 Corinthians. We're 19 weeks into this book. And if you don't know much about Frontline, what we love to do is take books of the Bible and slowly work our way through. It forces us to deal with stuff that like if I was just you know, picking a topic out of the air, we would not deal with much of this book. But this is really, really important. So with that in mind, I want to invite you, if you would, to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We do this not just out of honor for the word of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is our posture of saying, hey, we want to be people under the word. We stand to be under the word of God, right? So with that in mind, let me read this. This is in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through verse 23. The word of God speaks to us. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win all people. Sorry, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you speak to us. And I pray today that it wouldn't be me communicating. It would be us tuning in and hearing your heart. God, I pray that you would um, meet us in all the ways that we need it. I'm particularly aware of my friends in the room today that are not really sure what they think about Christianity, about Jesus, where they're at with all of this. Father, would you meet them and reveal your love for them? Reveal the ways that you've actually been pursuing them, almost chasing them down? God, we pray that you would draw them in today, answer their questions, their doubts, their skepticism, meet them in those places. And for those of us who are walking with you, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, would you, would you shape us today by this word? Whatever is in Paul's heart for him to do what he did, I'm asking that you would put it in our heart. Come and move and meet us in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, I heard a really fascinating talk by Simon Sinek. It's a pretty well-known talk. You may have heard of it. It's called Start With Why. And in that talk, uh, Simon Sinek brings up someone that I'd never heard of. Maybe you've never heard of him either. Chances are you haven't. Uh, A guy by the name of Samuel Pierpont Langley. Now, Samuel Pierpont Langley uh, doesn't maybe immediately bring anything to mind, but back in the early 20th century, powered man flight, trying to figure out how to get a plane in the sky powered with an engine that a human can ride on was the obsession of the day. Everybody was trying to figure out, sort of like in the 50s and 60s with uh, traveling to the moon. It was like the obsession of the early 20th century. And the most likely candidate to figure it out was Samuel Pierpont Langley. 
um, he had everything in his favor, money, lots of money. He was actually given $50,000 by the war department to figure out this whole flying machine thing. He was given, um, he, he had an incredible education. He had a seat at Harvard University and worked at the Smithsonian, was extremely well-connected to the best and brightest minds of his day. Because of his money and his connections at Harvard and the Smithsonian, he was able to build a team of the best and the brightest. And the whole idea of this team was like, how do we figure out powered man flight? And even more in his favor, he had the entire country backing him. The New York Times followed him around everywhere he went, reported on all of his updates and news and attempts at flying, and the whole country was cheering for him, rooting for Samuel Pierpont Langley to get this right, to make it work. And yet, none of us today have even heard of the guy. Why is that? Well, it's pretty interesting. A few hundred miles away in Dayton, Ohio, lived two brothers, Orville and Wilbur Wright. And the Wright brothers had none of the things that Langley had. They had no money. In fact, they used their, uh, the proceeds from their bike shop to fund their dreams of figuring out how to build an airplane. They had no education. Not a single person on the Wright Brothers team had any sort of college degree or education whatsoever. And they didn't have any social support because nobody even knew they existed. The New York Times followed them around nowhere. And yet, crazy enough, on December 17th, 1903, the Wright Brothers took flight. And here's what's really crazy. Nobody was even there to witness it. The New York Times found out about it a few days later. And here's what's really wild. You wonder, like, why did Samuel Pierpont Langley fail and the Wright brothers succeed? Well, here's why. It's because the Wright brothers were obsessed with the why. They were obsessed with the why. They believed that if they could figure out powered man flight, if they could get airplanes off the ground, that it would change the whole course of civilization. They didn't care about fame. They didn't care about wealth. They didn't care about money or success in the eyes of the world. They were focused on the why. And for them, the why was, this is going to change everything if we figure out airplanes. Whereas uh, Langley was only fo focused on the what and the how. He only cared about money and he only cared about stuff. And we know that that's the case, that he wanted the fame and the money attached to figuring this out because the very second he heard that the Wright brothers succeeded, he quit altogether and didn't try anymore. He didn't even try to like improve on their, their craft. He didn't try to do it better than them. He just quit altogether because he was not driven by the why. He was only interested in the what and in the how. Now, why do I bring that up? Some of you are like, this is church, not a history class. Stop talking to me. Um, why, why do I bring up this, this whole thing about the why? Well, here's why. Because in the text that we're looking at today, it's a very well-known passage. Even if you're not a Christian, even if you've never darkened the door of a church before, there's a phrase in this text that gets used in common culture today, becoming all things to all people. You might hear someone say, yeah, his problem was he was trying to be all things to all people. Or, you know, that's, that's really the issue is we're trying to be all things to all people. This is something that we use as a phrase even in our secular culture today. And yet, here's what's wild. What's happened again and again when this passage of, of Scripture gets taught is that we totally disconnect the why from why Paul did what he did, and we tend to focus in on the what and the how. And when we do that, something really dangerous starts to happen. At best, as we try to uh, follow in the Apostle Paul's footsteps for the sake of mission and evangelism, if we disconnect the why, at best, we get weird. 
And we do really weird things in the name of mission and in the name of evangelism. And at worst, we do things that are downright hurtful and unhelpful, just trying to quote unquote, win the lost. And actually what's happening here is Paul wants to give us very little on the what and the how, and he wants, he wants to key in on why. Why does he do what he did? What's driving Paul? What makes Paul tick? And so with that in mind, that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want to give you the context just in case you are just joining us, or maybe you're like me and you forgot what happened last week. So here's the context of where we're at. In chapter 8, the Corinthian church is continuing their wilding out spiral downward. And one of the things that started to happen was they were wanting to go into pagan temples, though they were Christian now. They wanted to go back into pagan temples. They wanted to sacrifice meat to idols and eat the meat inside of the pagan temples. And they were giving a defense for their uh, pagan temple eating by saying, well, it's no big deal. Like Nothing spiritual is happening. Anyway, we have the right to do this, Paul. And Paul is critiquing their right. He's actually saying, hey, you don't have the right, and this isn't something that you should be doing. And the second that Paul starts to push back on them, they start to call into question his apostolic authority, which isn't that how it always goes. We love people who are in charge until they tell us things that we don't want to hear. They're like, who made that guy in charge anyway? And why do you have the authority to tell me how to live? Well, that's what's happening. So in chapter nine, what Paul does is he goes on this absolute tirade where he asks 17 questions and 13 verses, all of them rhetorical. He says, hey, let me give a defense for why I'm saying what I'm saying. And what he does is fascinating. He builds a case from everyday human analogies, from the Old Testament law and the Torah, and from the very words of Jesus, that as an apostle, as a pastor, he has a right to get paid to do ministry. He has a right, he, he has owed financial payment from the church to do what he's supposed to do. And he builds his case brilliantly. Then he makes a shocking turn, if you remember. And the shocking turn is right as he fully builds his case of saying, you owe me money as a pastor. Like you're required by the Old Testament law and by all these things, even what Jesus himself said, to pay your pastors. He, he does this surprising turn where he says, and I'm actually renouncing all of my rights to get paid. I don't want to get paid. I want to work for free for the church. Why does he do that? What he's trying to say is one of the key aspects of what it is to be a Christian is to lay down our rights for the good of loving neighbor and loving God. Actually, one of the things that's most Christian that you can do is not get what you are owed or what you deserve or what your rights are, but to lay those down for the good of your neighbor. And so with that in mind, Paul's now going to really unpack the why. Why would he not get paid? Why would he do what he does? What, what makes Paul tick? That's what we're going to get into today. So look at verse 19. He says, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. I've just got three things that I want you to see real quickly this morning. Here's the first one. I want you to see Paul's passion. Paul's passion. This is the why behind what he did. He says, I do all things that I might win more of them. Now that word win is interesting because it only shows up six times in the New Testament. Five of those times are right here in this letter. All six are used by Paul, but five of the times that this word win is used is right here in this short section of verses. In verse 19, he says, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. I became as one under the law that I might win those who are under the law. 
I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. And then verse 22, he says, I became weak that I might win the weak. For Paul, winning is everything. Now, if I were to say that to you, that might be a turnoff. Like, I'm obsessed with winning. Like, that guy's got a way too competitive of a spirit. I don't like that. Maybe that's how you think of Paul. But for Paul, he he actually has an obsession for winning, but it's not a zero-sum game for Paul. It's not like, hey, I want to win so that you'll lose. And for Paul, it's not even like this weird Christian, like, I want to win notches on my belt so that I can get to heaven and show Jesus how many souls I want. Like, that, that for Paul means nothing. For him, winning is actually not about him winning. It's about God winning something. And we actually get more of clarity of what Paul meant in verse 22. Here's what he says in verse 22. He says, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. For Paul, winning is synonymous with saving. When you see that word win, what Paul is saying is, I do everything that I do because I want to see people saved. Friends, if you want to know what made the Apostle Paul tick, if you want to know his driving passion, what got him up in the morning, the thing that fueled his entire imagination as a person, it was this desire right here. Paul does everything he does because he wants to see people saved. That's at the core of all that he does. Now, here's the problem. The word saved in our Christian culture is almost a completely useless term, isn't it? It's almost completely useless. Like in church culture, we use the word saved in a really weird, bizarre way. We'll say, hey, when were you saved? And what we mean is, when did you become a Christian? Or I was saved in 1999, right? Or whatever it is, like that's how we use the phrase saved. I was saved. The problem with all of that is that we're actually neglecting what are we saved from? In church culture, what I found is there's a lot of talk about being saved, but there's not a lot of talk about being saved from what? What are we saved from? If I'm saved from something, like it's, it's inherent that there's some danger, some, something destructive, or death is on the line somewhere. Because even the way that our non-Christian culture uses that word, it's always in that way. That surgery saved my life. The hard conversation saved my marriage. Three people were saved from the house fire. Oh man, the only thing that saved us was the tornado shelter. We use the word saved to talk about some danger, something destructive, something that's death worthy, and we got rescued out of that. So here's the question that I want you to ask is for Paul, everything that makes him tick is winning or persuading people ultimately so that he can see people saved. Saved from what exactly? Well, to give you the answer There's another thing that Paul says in another letter to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 5, that I think will help bring to light a little bit more of what Paul means when he uses this word, saved. Look at Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, notice this line, much more shall we be saved by him from what? You can talk. The the wrath of God. 
Friends, Paul's driving passion, the thing that made him tick was he wanted to see people saved from the wrath of God. Now, I know that culturally we have an allergy towards any mention of the wrath of God. Even the mention of it kind of might bring to mind some uh, fundamentalist preacher in a suit yelling at people through a bullhorn about the coming and pending judgment of God. Repent or perish. And we kind of have that image in our heads anytime you hear anybody talk about the wrath of God. And so many of us naturally have this allergy towards the concept of God, the God of the Bible, the God who is love, also being a God who is full of wrath. It doesn't make sense. It's hard for us to grasp. And I just want to say, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're someone who's committed to Scripture, and if the primary image you have in your head of the wrath of God is what I just described, an angry fundamentalist yelling at people about judgment, if that's the primary image you have, I want to just posit to you that you're actually more shaped by our our current culture than you are by anything that's in Scripture because everything from Genesis to Revelation is consistent about God being a God of wrath. So it begs the question, what is the wrath of God? God's wrath is his holy, settled, consistent, intentional antagonism to all that is evil. God's wrath is his utter hatred for everything that destroys his good world that he created. God's wrath is not uh, obscure, it's not random, it's not him flying off the handle. It's patient, it's intentional, it's settled, and he has this holy antagonism to everything that is evil. He's adamantly opposed to it. In fact, I would just say because God is love, he must also be a God who is full of wrath. God's love is what fuels his wrath. Scott Sauls says it this way. He says, for love to be truly loving, there must be judgment. If there is no judgment, then there is no hope for a slave, a rape victim, a child who has been abused or bullied, or people who have been slandered or robbed or had their dignity stolen. If nobody is called to account before a cosmic judgment seat for violence and oppression, then victims will never see justice. We need a God who gets angry. We need a God who will protect his kids, who will once and for all remove bullies and perpetrators of evil from his playground. And friends, I just want to offer this to you. Like, your biggest problem and my biggest problem, humanity's biggest problem is not that we are generally good and we occasionally do bad things. It's that before a holy God to our very core, we are bad. And that's why we do the bad things that we do. We act out of our nature and our nature is inherently wrong. The problems in our world are not out there. Your greatest problem is not your childhood trauma. It's not what your dad did or didn't do or your mom did or didn't do. Your problem is not that you are a system of your culture. Your problem and my problem and humanity's greatest problem is that we are, according to Ephesians chapter two, children of wrath like the rest of mankind, that God has to be opposed to us if he truly is going to be committed to all that is good and all that is right. That's our problem. And Paul got this, he saw this, and he also saw something else, that that being our greatest problem, how mind-blowing is it that God himself stepped off of his throne, took off his crown, entered into human history, and literally lived perfectly in our place, doing what we could not do. 
and then on the cross took our place, literally the judgment of God that we deserved, our sin upon his shoulders, and there he suffered so that we wouldn't suffer. There he absorbed the wrath of God so that we could be hidden in Jesus Christ. Jesus died absorbing hell in our place so that you and I could be made forgiven sons and daughters who have life. Jesus took our place. And I didn't get this growing up. I heard about the cross all growing up. I didn't get this. But literally, I put myself where only God deserved to be. I want to be God. And God in his love put himself where only I deserve to be. He received the judgment that I deserved so that I could receive the life that he deserved. Or to say it the way that the apostle John did in chapter 3, John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son, listen to this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, I love how belief and obedience are tied together here. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, this is what made Paul tick, is that Paul knew people in his life that he loved people that he was concerned about, people that he felt burdened for, and he knew the truest, greatest reality, the wrath of God is on them. I'll do everything I can to see people won over. I'll do everything I can to see people saved from his wrath. And that leads me to the second thing that I want you to see, which is Paul's practice. How did he do it? How did Paul, with this driving ambition, this passion to see people rescued and saved. How did he do it? Well, look at what he says in verse 19. For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I love the paradoxical nature of that first line in 19 where he says, hey, I'm free from all, but I actually became a servant of all. He's saying I'm free from all, meaning Remember the context, hey, I'm not getting paid, Paul says. You guys aren't paying my paychecks. It's not like I'm bound to say or do certain things because you're funding my ministry. Paul's saying, I'm totally free. I can preach and live and do however I please. But here's what's crazy. Unlike most of us as Americans, Paul uses his freedom to become a servant of everybody else. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying, hey, I'm free, so therefore I'm gonna use my freedom to literally find every possible way to become a servant to everybody in my life. Practically, what did that look like? Well, he says, he goes, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. And that's sort of funny, right? Because Paul is what? He, he is Jewish. So he's like, I'm a Jew, Jew by birth and I became a Jew so that I could win Jews. What does that mean? Well, what he's saying here is, hey, now that I've come to realize that Jesus is the Messiah, all of this Mosaic law in the Old Testament is now rightly understood. I now see what this was pointing to. It's a signpost to the Messiah and Jesus has fulfilled the sacrificial system. Jesus has fulfilled this idea of circumcision. He's fulfilled the idea of cleansing laws and dietary restrictions and certain special holidays that the religious Jewish system still celebrates today. Paul's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that 
But guess what? If I'm hanging out with a Jewish person and the Jewish person doesn't know that Jesus fulfilled all of that, I'm very happy to go along with all of those rituals. I'm very happy to lay down my preferences and my rights so that I can live the way that they're living and win a hearing with them. I'll, I'll become a Jew. Or another way to say it is, hey, when I'm hanging out with my Jewish friends, I'm not ordering bacon sandwiches, all right? I could order a bacon sandwich, but I'm gonna be kosher. By the way, I, could, I would crush a bacon sandwich right now. It sounds so good, doesn't it? When does it not sound good? It sounds good. All the, you eat a full meal and go eat one of those right after that. So Paul's saying, hey, when I'm with Jews, I'll lay down my rights. I, I know theologically that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm going to become their servant in this way so that I can win some of them over. He goes on. He says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. This is a reference to the Gentiles or non-Jewish people who did not grow up having the Torah or the law of God that was day in and day out a part of their everyday life. He's saying, hey, when I'm around Gentiles, people don't know or care about all of those weird, specific Jewish religious rituals. I, I, I live the way that they live. I lay my preferences down so that I can engage them. Now, there's a really important caveat. Look at what he says in verse 21 because Paul doesn't want you to misunderstand him. He says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, parentheses, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. In other words, what's being described here is not laying down our Christian distinctives or our values or our ethics as the people of Christ and his kingdom. It's not laying down our, our ethics as Jesus people, but it is laying down all of our preferences. It is laying down what we are owed. It is laying down what we deserve, right? So Paul's not saying, hey, if you've got friends, I'm like, hey, we're gonna go to the strip club and then we're gonna get drunk and then after that, we're gonna do a line of cocaine and we'll end the night out with a healthy sense of a, a vandalism and go wreck some cars. You wanna join? Well, yeah, become all things to all people. That's not what Paul's saying, right? He's saying, I'm still under the law of Christ. I still have to obey the teachings of Jesus here but what I am going to do is find creative ways to lay down what I am owed. I'm going to lay down my rights. I'm going to lay down my preferences just to win a hearing. He says this. He says, to the weak, I became weak. Now, he's not talking about like I stopped going to the gym and I just, you know, I look like Pastor Andrew. No, he's not saying that. He, what he's saying is, he's saying to those who have a weak conscience, if there's something that I'm doing or something that I'm saying that they inherently, like, it's creating an obstacle in their conscience between them and Jesus, I'll lay it down. If you're weak, you have a weak conscience in that way, I will literally lay down all of my rights so that I can win a hearing with you. Friends, here's what I love about this. What I love about this is this is far less about gospel presentation and far more about gospel posture. We're not talking about the various ways that you try to make the relevancy of the gospel relevant in our culture. We're not talking about, you know, being culturally uh, relevant in really creative ways. Listen, at times, Paul's going to talk about how to communicate the timeless truths of the Word of God in a timely fashion based on the context and the people that you're in. There's a place for that. But I actually think to read this entire passage through the lens of how do we, you know, how do we modify the gospel? How do we dumb it down? How do we simplify it? How do we make it in such a way that there's no obstacles here, I think is to misread this entire text. Paul is not talking about the gospel presentation as much as he's talking about the posture of heart that you and I take where, where I go, you're, you're everything that matters right now. I'm gonna lay down my rights, my preferences. I'm gonna become your servant for the sake of winning a hearing. 
just to communicate the realities of Jesus and what he's done. And that leads me to the last thing I want us to see together, which is our response. This is the so what for Frontline. Why does this matter? What do we do if Paul's driving why? He, he, he saw that people were under the wrath of God. It's what drove him. It's what made him tick. It's why he did everything that he did. So therefore, he was finding creative ways to posture himself around Jewish people, Gentiles, weak people, those outside the law, so that he could win a hearing. What does this mean for us today? Well, I just got three questions as we close that I want you to consider. The first one is, when was the last time that you thought about the reality of the wrath of God? Like, honestly, when was the last time that you thought about the reality of the wrath of God? Has it been a month? Six months? Years? One of our pastors read this quote the other day, and it shook me to the core. It's by a scholar and an author by the name of Dick Keyes. He says, I have always felt that one of the reasons that Jesus is so widely treated as nice but irrelevant, offering a salvation that nobody really needs, is that people don't really believe the problem exists that he came to solve. And I just want to pose that maybe our issue is not that you and I don't know how to share the gospel, not that you and I don't know how to communicate the reality of what Jesus has done in his cross and resurrection. I don't know that the issue is as much that we just don't know how to do it is that we just don't care. We just don't care. Hey, friends, here's the reality. You have people in your life, family, coworkers, neighbors, people that are into the same hobbies that you're into that are right now under the wrath of God. Do you believe that or do you not? They are under the wrath of God right now. The reason why we don't do what Paul did is because we just don't care the way that Paul cared. And here's why I know it doesn't matter really how we communicate the gospel as much. It does matter. We should get good at that. But it doesn't matter as much as having a heart to do it. Do you know why? How many of you were saved in the 90s, early 2000s, 80s? Raise your hand. Show me across the room. Yes, several of us. That's only because of the grace of God. It's not because the programs were great. The power team, right? If you don't know what the power team is, then you've dodged a Christian bullet, okay? <laughs> it is absurd, right? It's grown men ripping phone books in half. How's that supposed to help me love Jesus anymore? Like, this is the stupidest thing in the world. And yet, people by the hundreds are like, I want to give my life to Jesus. I don't know why, but him, you know, breaking the, the thing over the dude's head, it just convicted me of my sin. I need God. I need God in my life, right? Your youth pastor gets a pie in the face. And you're like, yeah, I want to repent. I want to follow Jesus. Like, dude... I used to go downtown and walk up to strangers and be like, hey, do you know Jesus? No, let me tell you about Jesus. I know that you're on your way to a movie and you don't really want to talk to a stranger, but I'm going to talk to you for 15 minutes about Jesus and the gospel. And guess what? People got saved. People literally got saved. You know why? Because it doesn't necessarily matter as much how we do it that we have the why. And I just wonder, like, has Frontline Church lost the why? Have we lost the why? Friends, the wrath of God is real and it is on people that you know and that you love and that I know and that I love. If you really believe that, it changes everything. When was the last time you thought about that? Second question. What is the primary grid that you tend to function out of the most? What I mean is, are you more like a Corinthian or the Apostle Paul? The, the Corinthians grid was... In this situation, what do I want? 
What are my rights? What are my preferences? Corinthians would have made amazing Americans. What do I want right now? What do do I deserve? What, What am I owed? What are my preferences? The Apostle Paul's grid was entirely different. What is best for the gospel here? What right could I give up? What hardship could I take on to make the gospel more accessible? Of course I'm free, but how do I use my freedom to sacrifice my life and my preferences and my rights for loving God and loving neighbor and seeing them reached with the gospel? And that leads me to the third question I want us to consider together. What would it look like for you to lay down your rights, your preferences, your freedoms, all for the sake of becoming all things to all people in order to save some? What would it look like? What would change about your life, your schedule, your preferences, if everything you cared about was to gain an entry into the worlds and the lives of people around you who are currently lost in darkness. Maybe you're, uh, maybe you're like me, and you really are aware of the deformative effects of our culture right now, that our world is constantly shaping our loves and our desires and forming us. And I've got three little kids, and one of the things that my wife and I are passionate about is raising our children to be radically different, right? Uh, we've told our kids, like, hey, you're not gonna be cool. You just need to get that right now. You're gonna, your friends are all gonna be confused on a lot of levels. You're not gonna have a cell phone until you're like 16. Like, we're, we're, we're making some crazy decisions as a family. I'm this close to throwing the TV in the trash, right? I'm that guy, okay? Like, we're like getting weird about some stuff. And, and, and so I care about the formation of my kids. What would it look like if instead of being so nervous that my kids ever interact with someone who doesn't think and believe the way that I believe, that our home is filled with people who are far from God, that we're loving and serving, literally saying, hey, key to our house, we love you, be around. What would it look like? I actually want my kids to be exposed to things and hear things from other people that are lost that we can lead to really good conversations with. Have you become so aware of the deformative effects on our world that you're now shielding you and your kids from the reality of what we're supposed to be doing? Perhaps you love politics. I know that's nobody here. <laughs> that's not true, right? We know who you are. We figure out in about 15 seconds your love for politics. Uh, maybe you love politics and strong opinions. Hey, man, what would it look like to lay down your political preferences when talking to your neighbor who has the polar opposite political perspective that you have? What if instead about like making your win in life, winning them over to your political side, that you made your win in life, I want to remove every obstacle just so that I can gain a hearing with Jesus and the gospel. That's the win. Perhaps you don't care about a specific hobby at all, but your neighbor or your coworker is like really into it and they're far from God. What would it look like to pick up that hobby just to gain an entry point into their life so that you could figure out, man, how do I have more time with this person? Not to lay down my Christian distinctiveness, but to show them. And maybe, maybe you've used this line in 1 Corinthians 9 of becoming all things to all people. 
as a hall pass to do whatever the heck that you wanted to do anyway. That's usually how this text is used. Like, well, you know, I didn't want to like go out and do this, but like, you know, become all things to all people. And so then all of a sudden what's happening is we lose our distinctiveness as Christians. Man, maybe today the way that you respond to this text, this passage, is by repenting of all the ways that you've become just like the world to quote unquote reach the world, when actually there's nothing different about you than your neighbor who is far from God. Maybe today you repent by recovering becoming salt and light for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. On and on and on we could go, but friends, Paul's driving why is that he wants to win, persuade, save people from the wrath of God, and he's doing anything possible he can to see that happen. That's what you and I are being invited into as well. I want to invite you to stand with me. It's pretty crazy, isn't it, that... God himself did the very thing that the Apostle Paul is talking about. God himself had wrath on humanity, but his response to his wrath is breathtaking. He enters into human history, he takes on our humanity, and he hangs on a cross to absorb his own wrath so that you and I could receive forgiveness and salvation. We have a God who laid down his rights and preferences, literally becoming a servant to us by dying on a cross so that we could be saved from his wrath. Friends, as we take communion together, I wanna invite you to consider these words from Ray Ortland. Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. I wanna say a few things. We love you and we are honored by your presence. We love that you're here. And I actually want to say to you, don't come and receive this meal today. I want to say to you with love in my heart, you are under the wrath of God. And he has made his, his, his own blood an avenue for you to be saved from his wrath. And I actually want to urge you not to run to the table. I want to urge you to run to Jesus for hiding. It doesn't matter how busted up you are. I'm living proof of that. You can be a hot mess. You can be addicted right now. You could have your whole life a complete disaster. And here's what's crazy. He he already loves you. He already loves you. Run to him and hide yourself in his, his life, his death, his resurrection today. You'll be saved from the wrath of God if you do it. If you don't, you will not be. So run to Jesus. But if you're here and you're a Christian, before you come and receive the bread and receive the wine, hear these words from Ray Orland. Our real problem is not our sins. If our sins were the problem, we might muster the willpower to pull out of this nosedive. Our sins only provoke a bigger problem, the wrath of God. Our real problem is not our sins, but God. He is angry. He isn't going away and there's nothing we can do about it. If God is against us, who can be for us? But here is the good news. God has made God our salvation. He did it at the cross. God has provided a way of escape from God in God. We run from his wrath by running towards his grace in Christ. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. Hey, as proof that God is for us, his body was broken, his blood was shed, He is never going to let you go. So in light of his love, in light of him bearing his own wrath that we deserved, in 
in light of receiving his love, come and receive the bread and the wine. You can do this together in groups today.